Good morning, family. Let's get our Bibles out and let's open to Hosea chapter 1. Hosea is the first minor prophet, so you can find that on page 1038 on that pew Bible in front of you. Just go Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea. If you get to Joel, you went too far. Getting close to the New Testament, we're going to spend the next couple of months going through the book of Hosea. It's an amazing book, and it will reveal uh, facets of the character and nature of God to us in ways that I don't think any other place in Scripture does. I just want to remind you that uh, we'll be starting a starting point class today, so if you'd like to join us, uh, you can do so. It'll be upstairs in the loft back behind me, um, and we'll start today, and we'll go for six weeks. So if you want to be a part of that, you just come during the community group time. Also, uh, just make note that our next Saturate Sunday, we're planning to do that on June the 5th, so we're still working out some details. We're gonna, it's going to look a little different this time because we'll be partnering with Harbor City uh, to do uh, the eastern, the southeastern part of our zip code with the folks of Harbor City. So it will, uh, I'll give you the details in the weeks to come, but just make note that try to be here and be a part of that in a few weeks. Amen. Let's pray and ask the Spirit of God to help us and then we'll study. Father, as we peer into this beautiful, inerrant jewel that you've given us, to see wonderful facets of you. Lord, our hearts cannot grasp the things that you have placed before us unless you help us. So, Holy Spirit, we pray that you will come into this time. Give us ears that we might hear and hearts that welcome your word, regardless of what it says but based on who is saying. And God, may we have the courage to live out these things that we see. Thank you for being a God who communicates His love to His children. We are grateful and thankful in advance. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So this story of Hosea... uh, it's, uh, it's meant to be shocking, so it's going to be shocking. It's a story of a people who have abandoned their love. It's a story of a people who received prosperity from God, but have turned that into idolatry. And so it should sound like it's a story written to a people like us. Because it very much is. In fact, you can get your listening guide out. Hosea is the story of us. This is what the story is about. It's about me and it's about you. And so, if you'll just stay focused throughout this study, here's what I can promise you. God may reveal things to you that are extraordinary and special and change your life in a multitude of ways. He certainly may do that. 
But the one thing I think we will all take away from this time together is that we will know ourselves better and we will know the love of God more. That's what the book of Hosea will reveal to us corporately. And here's the great mystery of the gospel. is that you, you can't have a great theological hope unless you have a great theological understanding of yourself. You see, the gospel doesn't work without some, some self-acknowledgement. We have to come to the gospel in reality. We can't come to the gospel in delusion and expect the gospel to do the work that the gospel is designed to do. And this text this morning will make that very clear. You see, if, you're, if your hope is based on the fact that you're going to perform good tomorrow, or if your hope is based on the fact that you've done pretty good so far, but maybe you just need a little help along the way, then your hope is going to fail. It's going to fail. See, if we think that somehow we can polish ourselves up and act a certain way or dress a certain way or behave a certain way, and that somehow that's going to release God's love into our lives, then we're deceived. That's simply not true. And this is what Hosea, right from the beginning, wants us, wants us to see. Look at the context. Look at verse 1. Hosea chapter 1, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Hosea, the son of Beeri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. Now, let me explain a few things. If you didn't, didn't follow along online or weren't here, maybe you were serving in Awana or somewhere else. A few months ago, we did a Wednesday night series called Under Authority, where we studied through the kings. It would be super helpful for you to uh, go through that at some point, if you haven't already. And then you would understand that what's happening here is we're getting the context of the situation that's going on amongst God's people right now. Now, Hosea is, uh, is, a, is from the northern kingdom of Israel, and he is sent to the northern kingdom of Israel. So Israel is split into two kingdoms, the bottom or the southern kingdom of Judah, with the capital being in Jerusalem, the northern kingdom of Israel, with the capital being in Samaria. And so all of that happened after Solomon. It was sort of through, think of like civil war, north and south. They split, and so you have ten tribes on one side and two tribes on another side. Well, Hosea is a prophet to the north, so this is during the days of King Jeroboam. And you can see that Jeroboam served a long time because in the southern kingdom of Judah, there's listed four kings. So he was king for a very long time, which leads you to important information to understand what's going on. Is that Hosea doesn't come into, he's not called to be a prophet to Israel in this utterly dark, desperate, desolate time like other prophets. He's called to be a prophet at a time that is spiritually dark and desperate. But the people of God under King Jeroboam are experiencing great prosperity. They're safe. 
Their economy is booming. Things are going wonderful for them in Israel during his reign. So what we need to understand is what is the Bible telling us? Well, that we're entering into a situation where God's people are prosperous but unfaithful. So that teaches us something, that in the economy of God, prosperity can mean punishment. Now this is, I hope that you understand this because this is something that few people seem to grasp today in Western Christianity. You do not equate prosperity to God being pleased with activity. You, that's called pragmatism and it is unbiblical and it is a prosperity gospel. Remember, in the first chapter of Romans, the Bible says, Therefore God gave them up to the lust of their heart and to impurity. What God oftentimes does is when we are lusting after or living for or serving things in idolatry and we continue to persist in this, what God does is He gives it to us. He says, If you want that, okay. And that's what happens here. And God does that in our lives. And He does that for a very specific purpose reason because if he continues to try to withhold it from us we'll just continue to seek after it and so in his mercy he gives it to us so that we can what find out that it's not what we thought it was that's exactly what's going on here the gifts of God never replace God because the gifts of God aren't the gospel God is the gospel see the good news isn't, isn't the gifts of God. The good news is God. So there's a principle in this. And that is for you and for me. Can we agree that every one of us in Christ has been blessed? Okay, now listen closely to what I'm about to say. We've been blessed, but we've been blessed in different ways. You know, some similar ways, but then in different ways. Some of you have been blessed financially some of you've been blessed relationally some of you've been blessed in a multitude of ways however God in his sovereignty has chosen to bless you he has done so for you to be a blessing that's the purpose of God's blessing to you is for you to be a blessing however it is that God has blessed you it would be so helpful for us all to understand this. And it would make you in the great minority of Christians today. Look at verse 2. So when the Lord began to speak to Hosea, began to speak to Hosea. So we didn't miss parts of it. The Lord said to Hosea, go take a wife, take for yourself a wife of harlotry and children of harlotry. For the land has committed great harlotry by departing from the Lord. So here's what we have. We have the what and we have the why. The what is you're going to take a wife and you're going to take children of harlotry. The why is because the people of God have committed harlotry and have turned their back on the Lord. Now this is meant to shock us. It's meant to sort of, you know, that verse 2 should sort of take your breath away. 
And especially today, because we live in a culture that massages words, don't we? Yes. We use euphemism for everything that makes us uncomfortable. Because we don't want to use words that cause people to, to, to feel awkward. See, our sins today are not our sins. They're our issues. Our sins are not our sins. They're our brokenness. Or they're our baggage. No. They're sins. That's what they are. See, we use words to paint a picture of ourselves that's not that bad. It's not as bad as it really is. We try to make it seem a little a little less shocking. But here's the problem. The problem with that is is that we can't truly confess our sin without recognition of how terrible our sin truly is. You see, coming to God and saying, God, well, I've, I've, I've done some things wrong, but in our heart, not really uh, acknowledging that what we've done is sin against God. If we think that what we've done is kind of bad or pretty bad or a little bit bad or... No, you see, you don't bring your issues or your brokenness or your baggage to God. You bring your sin to God. And that's very important because when you read the Scripture, you'll find that clarity always precedes cleansing. Always. You see, the the promise that God is faithful to cleanse us through confession... What's embedded into that reality is that we're actually confessing the right thing. Sin. When we confess our sin. So clarity. We need clarity. So that's what God is doing here through Hosea. Look at verse 3. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, And she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, Call his name Jezreel, for in a little while I will avenge the bloodshed of Jezreel on the house of Jehu and bring an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. It shall come to pass in that day that I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. Now, as soon as we get past the shocking reality of God calling Israel, a man of God, to take a wife of harlotry and to have children of harlotry. Then there's this shock of what God says next. Now, this doesn't shock us as much as it should because we're just too far removed from the context. Believe me, anybody present, any Old Testament uh, saint would be completely aghast at what God just said. You see, but, but let, let's just look at the first thing. Before we respond to what God said, let's look for just a second at what Hosea did. In other words, Hosea's response to God's crazy, bizarre, shocking command is crazy, bizarre, shocking obedience. He just did what God said. I mean, let's don't miss the fact that he obeyed. I mean, can we agree Hosea makes Jonah look junior varsity here? I mean, I'm just telling you, when Hosea met Jonah in heaven, Hosea's like, really? 
go to Nineveh, you can't do that. The whole swallow by a fish thing. I mean, what a drama queen. I mean, Hosea, if anybody should have ran the other direction, it should have been Hosea. So this marriage, why this marriage? It's a picture of God's relationship with Israel. I think that's pretty obvious. But let's get some clarity on how exactly this works. Remember back in Deuteronomy chapter 7. Here's what the Bible says. The Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you because you were more in number than any other people. For you are the least of all peoples, but because the Lord loves you. So in other words, we need to remember how this thing started. How this relationship started. And, and so if this marriage is a picture of this relationship, then we need to understand this relationship. So now what this tells us is, is that Hosea didn't set his love upon Gomer because of what she did or how great or good she was or wasn't. No, he just chose to love her. Because it's a picture of a relationship between a God who just chose to love a people. Not based on how they performed. Not based on because they were worthy or deserved it or any other reason, right? And so these two things have to, have to be clear. So what it's telling us is that Gomer is chosen and loved just like you and me. Yeah. That if we're asking the question of, well, who are we? Well, we're not Hosea. We're Gomer. And thank God my name's not Gomer. But he was a funny mechanic in an old-timey shop on a black and white show. All the young people are like, Choo. All right. Call his name. This is what matters. Jezreel. Jezreel. Is that ringing a bell? Remember the extraordinarily wicked King Ahab and his amazingly wicked and depraved wife Jezebel? And that whole thing that we talked about when we walked through the life of Elijah, remember that? Well, remember that at the end of that story, Ahab decides that he wants a vineyard, but the vineyard is owned by a man named Naboth. And they go to Naboth and say, we want to buy your vineyard. And Naboth says, no, it's not for sale because this is my family land. This is my legacy. I've inherited and we're keeping in the family and that's what we do and it's not for sale. And so Ahab goes back to the palace and pouts because he wants this vineyard. And so Jezebel decides she's going to take matters into her own hands. And so she just sends out men to slaughter Naboth and his family. And she just takes the vineyard and gives it to her husband. That vineyard was in Jezreel. Jezreel is the city in which that occurred. And so, Jezreel is a place of bloodshed in the Old Testament. 
The way you could understand this is when God says call his name Jezreel, the, the, only, the only correlation that I could come up with to help you get this would be if God told us to name our child Auschwitz from Nazi Germany. That's what Jezreel means. It is a place of great atrocity. Now, the word Jezreel, interestingly enough, it means to scatter, like a farmer would scatter seed. And so Hosea is the last prophet to go to Israel before God scatters them through the Assyrians. So all of these pieces are fitting together. And so we see a God who has bent over backwards to bless his people with his presence. Remember he, he told David to build a, a tabernacle. Solomon, he, David did all the preparation. Solomon built this great temple where God could meet with his people and his people could meet with him. He went through all of this trouble to do this. And then his people just turned away from him and rejected him and so he scatters them. You see, the northern kingdom, Jerusalem and the temple was in the southern kingdom. So what did Jeroboam do? He tore down all, anything that had to do with Yahweh God, and he made a new, new temples. And now, instead of going to Jerusalem, everybody just went to Samaria, and they went there, to, and they worshiped gods of Baal and worshiped false gods and did all sorts of things that were an abomination to the Lord. And so God's going to scatter them by the Assyrians after this. Look at verse 6. And so then she conceives again and bore a daughter. And then God said to him, Call her name No Mercy. For I will no longer have mercy on the house of Israel, but I will utterly take them away. Now I want you to notice a little nuance in verse 6. Remember that when Jezreel was born, it says that she conceived and bore him a son, bore Hosea a son. Remember that? Now notice in verse 6, she just conceived and bore a daughter, and it's purposely ambiguous as to who the father is. You see, that's on purpose because she's a wife of harlotry. And so that's why there's a, a pronoun missing in verse 6 for a reason. And then God says in verse 7, Yet I will have mercy on the house of Judah. Will save them by the Lord their God. And will not save them by bow, nor by sword or battle, by horses or horsemen. Now, remember, we're talking about the northern kingdom. Now God tells them, he says, Now I want you to name your child, your next child, no mercy. And then he points out, what he's going to do in the southern kingdom, not in the northern kingdom. He's telling the people in the northern kingdom, here's what I'm going to do in the south. I'm going to have mercy on them. Now, why is God doing this? Because God is pointing something very important out to us here. He's showing us that he's not the one who's changed. Because if, if verse 7 wasn't here you would be tempted to think, well, wait a second. 
Maybe you thought this when we read verse 6. What do you mean no mercy? Didn't you say that you would have mercy on your people and now you're saying no mercy? And so God gives us verse 7 to understand God didn't change. He's still of God of mercy. He's saying it's not that I don't have mercy. He's saying I just don't have mercy for you. That's important to understand. He wants to be clear who's changed here in this relationship. Not me, you. Another thing that I think is worth mentioning here is that we need to just stop and take note that whenever God extends mercy in our lives, He does that on purpose. Now just think about this for a second because I think a lot of times people miss this. When God extends mercy to you, he's extending mercy on purpose for a reason. It's intentional. Sometimes we tend to think about God like he's a mercy factory. And so we sin and then mercy just rolls off the conveyor belt to us. That's not how that works. When we sin, God purposely responds in mercy. Now now here's why I point that out it's because it's a conscious choice by God to extend mercy to us over and over and over again although it may be over and over and over again it's still every time a conscious decision on his part this is what he's driving home in verse 7 so that we'll understand this so that we won't get confused about who he is or how he operates or how he relates to us So when he says, call her name, no mercy, for I will no longer have mercy on the house of Israel. Is he angry? Yes, he's angry. But his anger flows from the depths of his affection for his people. You see, we tend to just see a text like this and we see God as angry, but we miss where is this anger coming from? Where is the, because in anger is passion. See, anger proves that you care. You don't get angry about things you don't care about, right? And so see this here. It's flowing out of the depths of his love for his people. So he's saying, listen, I I, I still am who I've always been. I still have mercy to give, just not for you. Verse 8, now when she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. No pronoun. And God said, call his name, not my people. For you are not my people. And I will not be your God. Now. Think about this. To God, idolatry is adultery. Let's think this through for a second. What does this tell us about the way God views his relationship to us 
You see, it doesn't matter how you see idolatry. It matters how God sees idolatry. And the way God sees idolatry explains everything about the way God sees the relationship between us and him. So he's the one who sees this as adultery. Which is a fascinating reality. It's this window where we get to... You see, in in the book of Hosea, what we're going to see over these weeks is it's like God opens up a window and allows us to look into his heart. This may be the most vulnerable book in the Bible for God. So he sees idolatry. Now remember... All of our sin, no matter what it is, in some form or fashion, is idolatry, right? And he sees idolatry as adultery. So, here's what that means. At the root of all sin is twisted love. Twisted love. Every sin that I've ever committed and every sin that you've ever committed is an act based on, motivated by, twisted love. See, God has every right to damn us and to shame us or to divorce us. But He doesn't. What he does is he pursues us and he loves us and he changes us. But we have to understand that God's motivation in punishment is never punitive. I know I've, I've probably said five things already that are literally their life-changing theological truths. And, I, and I, I like to spread those things out so I'm not bombing you at one time. But I, it's, it's just in these few, first 11 verses. And that's another one. That all of these things should be on your handouts. You could take them home and think about them. God's punishment is never punitive. God doesn't punish you to hurt you. God's motivation in punishment is to untwist our love. That's his motivation. So ladies and gentlemen... Understand that God loves you in a way that you are not on your own capable of fathoming. You can't fathom it on your own. It's too great. It's too unbelievable because here here in this moment... God responds to our infidelity with his loyalty. His loyalty. He has every right to issue a a decree of divorce. He could have just wrote the northern kingdom off and said, I'm done with them. And he could have changed his mind. He could have just made the, the people of the southern kingdom his people. He could have done that. He had the right to do that. he doesn't and so verse 10 
It's a, it's a whiplash verse. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be as the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people. There it shall be said to them, You are sons of the living God. Now, you're going to have to look closely at verse 10 and think sharply for just a moment. Those are loaded words. Remember in Genesis 12, the Abrahamic covenant, when God comes to Abraham and establishes this plan that he's going to, uh, he's going to create a people, he's going to form a people, and there's two components to this. God comes to him and he says, comes to Abraham and he says, I'm going to make a people that you can't number, that are going to span across the world, right? And I'm going to put them in a place, the promised land. So there's two things. There's a people and there's a place, right? That's the the covenant that God makes. And God always keeps his promises. And they're not based on our deservedness, but on his faithfulness. And so out of a divorce, there's going to be an adoption. See, that's what he says in in verse 10. The the number of the children of Israel are going to be like the sand of the sea. A, A people. And then notice what he says. In the place where Jezreel, it was said to them, you are not my people. A people and a place There's going to be a restoration of a people. There's going to be a restoration of a people in a specific place. Verse 11, then the children of Judah and the children of Israel, so now we're back together, shall be gathered together and appoint for themselves one head, and they shall come up out of the land, for great will be the day of Jezreel, Chapter 2, verse 1, say to your brothers, my people, and to your sisters, mercy is shown. All right, let me explain this. So these, the divided kingdom is going to come under the headship of one. This is the one, capital O, who's been promised throughout the entirety of the Old Testament. He's the one that God said would come and crush the head of the serpent in the book of Genesis. This is the one that Isaiah prophesied would be the prince of peace who would bring an end to the darkness and the death that had plagued the people of God. This is referencing the Lord Jesus. See, Jesus is the one who was born in the fullness of time to make right once and for all the reconciliation between man and God. And so what, he, what, what is happening here is that in the midst of this condemnation, in the midst of this pronouncement of judgment, then there's this whiplash where God spins it around and he shows how he's going to respond to our ingratitude and our un, unfaithfulness and our sinfulness. And he says that these people are going to come out of this place. See, to Jezreel, remember I said to scatter. 
like a farmer scatters seed. Well, look back at verse 10. You might want to underline, and they shall come up out of the land. Do you see that? It's very intentional what God says. Jezreel means to scatter because we thought it was to scatter by the Assyrians that scatter them after, this prof, after the prophet Hosea's ministry is done. But God says that's what you thought. But in actuality, because you thought that my judgment was punitive, but in actuality what's going on is God saying, yes, this Jezreel to scatter... Yeah, He's going to scatter us so He can plant us so that we'll grow up in the places that He planted us all across the face of the earth and be a people that outnumbers the sand of the sea. See, what this is telling us is that He abandons us so that we can recognize our need for Him and, we can, and then He can come back to us and say that I am yours and that we'd be willing. See, what he's saying is come home. Come home, wayward sons and daughters. Come home away from your sin. I want to be your God and you're to be my people. To which I say, well, I don't deserve it. I've done too much. I've gone too far. Remember in the book of Romans... Chapter 5, God says, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. See, that's the way God operates. We've been unfaithful to a holy God, but his punishment is meant to allure us. It's meant to entice us, to bring us back to him. That's the story of God's love. It's the story of God saying, well, I will give you the things you want so that you will see how empty they are, so that you will then desire the things that you need. This is what this is saying. See, the bloodshed of Jezreel, Auschwitz, is now covered by the bloodshed of the cross. The one who's coming to unite his people. It's, it's the story of a love that's never ending, never stopping, always pursuing. See, this love is, is based not on our performance, but on his glory and his goodness. It's a love that's Built on the foundation of his death, burial, and resurrection. See, his love is kind. It's patient. It's not rude. It's not irritable. It doesn't boast. It's not resentful. And it believes all things. It hopes all things. Remember? It endures all things. Meaning it even endures this moment in time. God hasn't changed. He's still the God who loves in a 1 Corinthians 13 way. Because he doesn't change. See, God loves you and me that way just because He does. Just because He does. See, the only thing that qualifies us for God's love is the love of God. That's all. That's it. That's it. So what a perfect moment to pause and and just celebrate the Lord's Supper and reflect on what God has just shown us about His love for us. But we have to honor 
what God said about the Lord's Supper. We just studied 1 Corinthians of people who had lost their identity and were practicing the Lord's Supper incorrectly. So let me remind you that it's a serious thing to come to the moment of communion with an unprepared heart. It's a serious thing to receive the supper in a careless manner. So what we're going to do is have a moment of invitation where you can pray where you are. You can come and kneel down at the altar and, and confess your sin to God. And let's be very clear that what we're confessing are not our mistakes, but our sin. That's what we're confessing. We're coming to God acknowledging that we're unworthy. And here's the thing, is that an unredeemed mind void of the Spirit of God can't understand this because unredeemed people think that coming to God, coming to God with a true understanding of our sinfulness and brokenness will make us hate ourselves. But it won't. It will make us hate our sin. And it will make us love even deeper our God. That's what it will do.